Hey y'all, just wanted to give a quick warning before we start. This episode follows one woman's account of domestic abuse and includes depictions of violence. So skip this one if you need to. So at what point did you realize um, that the control he had over your finances was like kind of a dangerous thing? The first time I tried to leave... It was a sunny fall afternoon in 2009 when Angie decided to leave her husband, Mike. They were fighting on the porch of their house in a small rural town in the Midwest. She doesn't remember what it was about because for the entire four years they had been married, it was just constant fighting. On this particular day, their kids heard all the commotion and came running out to the porch. Everybody was screaming, and then Mike was screaming at the kids. I was I was worried that he was going to turn on the kids because he was screaming at them. Mike often got violent with Angie, but this was the first time she felt like her husband might hurt the kids, too. So she told them to grab their jackets and get in the truck. And uh, Mike said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm not fucking doing this. I'm not living like this. And... He's like, what do you think you're going to do? You think you're just going to walk out of here with my kids? Do you think I'm going to allow that? Angie was shaking. The kids didn't even have socks or shoes on. She was running on pure adrenaline. My heart is beating so fast, and I can't draw, like, a a clear breath. And, you know, I just, I I don't have a thought because it's a, it's like a, it's like a flight response. Just get the hell out. Like, just get out as far away as you possibly can. To stop her from leaving, Mike grabbed her purse and the keys to the truck. I grabbed the spare key and went and started the truck up and locked the doors, and he came around beating on all the doors, and he gets around to my window, and he's like, don't do this, Angie. Don't do this. Her mind was racing. Have the kids had lunch? I don't even think they've eaten yet. I I don't have any money to feed them. There's a quarter tank of gas in this car. How far can I get on a quarter tank of gas in this truck? Not very far. And... What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And suddenly, in that moment, Angie fully realized how much control her husband had over her life. It didn't even matter that Mike had grabbed her purse because she didn't have any money in there. No debit card, no credit card, no access to cash at all. You reach some low points in your life or you think you reach low points and then you, you sit at that moment and you're sitting in a car and your kids are crying And you've got this psychotic fucking man beating on your glass. And you realize that you have nowhere to go. Like, you have nowhere to go, man. And that's when Angie turned the truck off. And I just kind of put my head down, like, on the steering wheel. And honestly, the thought was, fuck. I felt completely defeated. And welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show from Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. This week's story looks at what happens when money is a means of control. Mike was Angie's second husband. When she met him, Angie was a single mom of two kids. She had an office job doing administrative work. Money was tight, but she'd always been good with it, you know, keeping the bills paid and her kids fed. It was 2003 when she started dating Mike, and she was struck by how he seemed to have it all together. He had just gone back from the Navy and had a good job as a union iron worker. I thought he was a, a pretty responsible guy. I mean, he was—he he spoke intelligently. Um, 
he was good looking, you know, I mean, the, the dark guy, the dark eyes, dark hair, you know. And She really liked how he talked about the importance of family and loyalty. He came off as this charismatic and self-assured guy. He was like a chatty Cathy, you know, like he always talked a lot. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the time, I thought that was pretty cool. She was also happy to have just found someone who was accepting of her and her two kids. After a couple years together, she and Mike had a baby boy of their own and tied the knot. And when it came to merging their lives, Mike wanted to be the one who managed their bills and finances. He was like, you don't have to worry about money anymore. Like, that's, that's my job. And at the time, Angie really liked that arrangement. All right, awesome. You know, great. Like, I'll go to work, I'll do my part. So for him to, you know, breeze in and be like, nah, I'm going to take care of that. You know, like, the man pays the bills, that's how it goes. And I'm like, okay, and that's what I saw growing up. They moved into a new house, had their second kid. But while things were moving forward, Angie acknowledges that since the beginning, there was always a dark side to Mike. He had a really short temper and was almost always in a bad mood. It could be absolutely nothing. You could be sitting there watching TV and then he would just have this really deep sigh and then you would just you just knew that something was wrong. He picked a fight daily. It would start over something small, then quickly spiral. And then it would be like, well, do you remember like two years ago when I said this and then you said that? And well, I think you're lying. Angie really hated this side of him, but felt like she needed to push through it. Their family kept growing, so she just accepted his moodiness as part of the package. But after they got married, his moods went from bad to violent. The first time he hit her was a night after she got drinks with coworkers. He was mad that she went out. And when she got home, the beating was so bad that she didn't wake up until the next afternoon. He left her on the floor of the laundry room, right by the door she walked in from. Angie didn't know what to do. Because you don't immediately think, like, I need to leave, I need to get the hell out of here. Like, it's, what, what can I do to make that sure that never happens again? Like, what steps can I take? She never thought to call the police. She didn't think they could do anything for her. Instead, her plan was to do whatever she could to appease Mike. But it was hard. The tiniest things would make him explode, especially when it was about money. There were many things that I had to explain. You know, like, my, I, I drove a Mazda, and it didn't take much gas, so anything over, like, 20 bucks at the gas pump, I had to explain. Mike kept a close watch to make sure he knew exactly what Angie was spending at all times. Like, when she'd get back from the grocery store, he'd stand over her and watch her unpack. You know, and if there was something there that he didn't feel we needed or whatever, then he would question me about it. And sometimes it would end right there, and other times it would become a fight. Mike constantly policed her spending and criticized her choices. Because one of his big things had to do with waste. He'd bully Angie and the kids into finishing their food. He even yelled at her about buying something as simple as coffee beans. And how I spend $5 a week on a can of coffee that I only drink, like I make a pot and I only drink half the pot. And how wasteful we are as a family. And then one day, his control over how she spent money reached a whole new level. She had forgotten to take the meat out of the freezer for dinner, and so she stopped by the grocery store on her way home. He was upset about that, and he was like, I got this big lecture about wasting money and how it was an unnecessary stop, and, you know, like, if I had just thought ahead and took the meat out, like, I could have saved 50 bucks. He called her irresponsible and yelled at her for about 45 minutes straight. 
At this point, Angie was desperate for him to just drop it. So she did the only thing she could think of. I was like, here, just take the debit card. Like, I'm sorry, it's not a big deal. It was actually a huge deal. Their joint account was the only one she had, and her debit card was how she accessed cash. I think the week after that was the first time I realized, like, well, I won't have access to my paycheck, you know? Up until now, money was their main source of tension. But after this fight, money would become the way Mike took total control over Angie's life. You know, like, I'm not a child, and that's what I felt like. I felt like a child. I felt like I was two inches tall. Along with her debit card, he took away her personal credit card and insisted on seeing her deposit slips from her paychecks every other Friday. She couldn't even stop by the bank to take out cash because he was watching the account balance like a hawk. So I had this whole, like, internal struggle with it and finally decided to just go with it and said, okay, you know, like, we'll just do it your way. So, yeah, to avoid the verbal and physical abuse, she went along with what he wanted. She'd go through him to get cash and get his approval on every purchase. Everybody always says the same stupid-ass question. Why doesn't she just leave? You know, why doesn't she just leave? You know, nobody says, why is he doing it? But why, why doesn't she just leave? Because it's not that simple. It's never that simple. Mike built a system in which she was completely dependent on him financially. He even convinced her to leave her job. She was pregnant with their third child, and he claimed if she took care of the kids, it would save them money on daycare. She didn't want to quit. She enjoyed getting up every morning and going to work. But Mike was relentless. Like, he just wore me down. He was like, you know, I have more respect for women that stay at home and actually take care of their children. And I have more respect for women that, you know, are willing to do what needs to be done to make sure that their children have what they need. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the people that you work for don't give a shit about you. So that's what I did. I went on maternity leave and I never went back. Oh, wow. Mike used money in all sorts of ways to have power over Angie, even when it came to her body. They had four kids together. I breastfed all four of those kids, and not because I wanted to. I mean, it was awful, man. Mike refused to give her money for formula for any of their kids. Instead, he told her, I'm not going to buy formula and pump that shit into my children Hmm. when God gave you boobs to feed those children. Did it make you feel powerless in those moments? That entire marriage made me feel powerless. Mm-hmm. There, there weren't moments. There were years. Along with the physical and psychological abuse, what Angie was experiencing is a form of financial abuse. And unfortunately, it's really common. One therapist told me that it occurs in 99% of domestic violence cases. And financial abuse often happens when you're deep in a relationship, when you've already made serious ties with that person, which makes it a lot harder to identify when it's happening in the moment and makes it harder to extract yourself. When we come back, Angie hatches an escape plan.
Over the next few years, Angie kept weighing her options. She tried to leave at least a dozen times, but she had no money and no place to go. Also, it didn't help that Mike controlled how she spent her time. He didn't allow her to have much of a social life, sabotaged her relationship with her family, and whenever she'd leave the house, he'd monitor how long it'd take her to run errands. If Angie wanted to get her and the kids out of there for good, she'd need to have some financial independence. So she started finding some clever ways to do that. I knew that if I went to Kroger's or Walmart to get groceries, that I could get cash back and it would just appear in the total on the bank statement. She'd only get cash back every once in a while, about $10 at a time, so he wouldn't get suspicious. And then once I did get home, I would keep it in a coffee can in the laundry room. This went on for months. But while Angie was trying to save, she often ended up spending this money on her kids. Like, he wouldn't pay for roller skating at school. He thought that was so stupid. And he was like, I don't understand why I gotta pay $9 a kid for them to roller skate. And Angie's kids knew about this stash. So when Mike refused to pay for something, they'd come to her. We had this whole, like, bootleg operation going, and they would they would come into the laundry room, and they would be, like, really loud, Hey, Mom, do you have any socks for me tomorrow? And I'd be like, I don't know. Let me look. And then I would, like, give them, like, a buck or two. It soon became clear, though, that squirreling away money like this wasn't actually going to be enough to leave. At the end of, like, six, eight months, I had, like, 60 bucks. I was like, Really? I was so disappointed, and I thought, you know, like, I'm never going to get out of this hole. Like, I'm never going to get out. As soon as their youngest child was old enough to go to school and they no longer needed daycare, Angie decided to run an idea by Mike. I said, you know, I should go back to work. And he liked the idea because of money, so he he was into the idea. So Angie got a part-time job at a post office about a 30-minute drive away. Her paychecks were direct deposited into their joint account, so she still had to go through Mike to access her money. But at least the job gave her a much-needed distraction. I got to put my head somewhere else for six to eight hours a day. Like, you know, I used to do crossword puzzles and stuff like that. Like, anything to occupy your mind, to distract yourself from the fact that you're living in bullshit. And that was a, that was a great way to do it. Like, from the time you got your job at the post office, how long were you able to leave for good? Um, two years. Angie's turning point came on President's Day weekend last year, on a 20-degree snowy day. Mike had their 13-year-old son Jacob out shoveling snow without a jacket. At one point, he came inside to get warm, which pissed Mike off. He started yelling at their son, telling him to go back out. And then it got physical. He punched Jacob in the side of the head, and Jacob went down uh, so hard. He just kind of crumpled on the floor. And, uh, I mean, he was he's a big boy, but, God, he was so little under him. And I didn't know what to do. And uh, Mike got on top of him and was screaming in his face and was uh, shaking him so hard that his head was hitting the back of the floor, and I was so scared. Angie threw herself over Jacob's head to protect him, but Mike only got more enraged. He threw a coffee table across the room and stormed out. Like, I was just emotionally wrung out. I was just done. I was so done. 
their 12-year-old son, Mikey, sat down beside her and put his arm around her shoulders. He said, don't worry about it, Mom. In a couple of hours, Dad won't be mad anymore. You know how he is. That one comment, you know how he is, just rang in Angie's ear. That was the thing that I needed to hear. I needed to hear that because what that meant was that this had become normal to my children. Angie's two oldest from her first marriage were already out of the house. But their four kids, ages 8, 10, 12, and 13, had come to expect their dad's violent behavior. Angie decided that was it. She'd leave with the kids the next morning after Mike left the house. And as soon as I saw his van go over the railroad tracks, I told the kids, go get the car. Angie scrambled to get a change of clothes, a few stuffed animals. She filled up a trash bag and a suitcase of their things and walked out the door. So I had my wallet, I had my purse, I had my keys, and I had my kids. She hopped in the driver's seat and reversed out of the garage, driving away from the only place her kids had ever called home. Her body was shaking. And I kept saying, okay, over and over and over again. And I didn't even realize I was doing it until Jacob, who was sitting in the passenger seat, Jacob was like, mom, you're freaking us out. What's wrong? Because I was just saying, okay, 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 okay. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Angie stopped at the nearest gas station and used a payphone to call up a family friend, really the only person in her life who she felt like she could call. I called her up and I was like, I left Mike and I have the kids and I have $13 and nowhere to go. And she said, come straight to my house and we'll take it from there. I got to her house and she was so amazing. She was like, pull up. She has a farm. She was like, pull up to the gas pump by her um, barn. She was like, I'm going to fill up your Jeep. She's like, I've already called a hotel in Princeton there and booked you two nights there. She's like, we'll figure the rest out as we go. But I want you to go there. Go with the kids. Call me when you get there. So that's exactly what Angie did. She and the kids headed to a hotel about 45 miles away. Her friend gave her $600 and told her she'd get her more soon. Meanwhile, Angie filed for an order of protection against Mike. And within days, a judge granted the request and ordered Mike to leave the house. So by the end of February, Angie and the kids moved back into their home. About uh, three weeks later, I started getting eviction notices, but not real ones. Okay, like... They looked real, but they weren't real. Angie suspected Mike had been breaking in, putting these fake eviction notices all over the house. And uh, I would wake up in the morning and there would be one tucked under the coffee pot. What? Uh, yeah, there would be one like taped to the mirror above the sink in the bathroom. Um, one was on the pillow on my bed. The kids were freaked out. After that first fake eviction notice, they decided to sleep with Angie on the floor of her bedroom. She was definitely worried, but she says she wasn't afraid of Mike anymore. The body can only sustain fear for so long, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't be afraid. Angie eventually applied for public housing, and by the end of May, the state found a place for her and the kids. They moved seven miles away into a three-bedroom duplex. She says the neighborhood's not great, but the home is completely subsidized. It's giving her some time to try to get back on her feet. Angie is 39 now, and in so many ways, she's starting over from the ground up. She's working through all of the emotional and psychological damage of domestic abuse. Plus, all the years of Mike controlling her money took a toll on her financial health. My credit score, I had no idea 
You know, I had no idea. My credit score is probably in the low 500s. She says she now realizes how debilitating it was to not have access to her own money for 14 years. You know, it's just digging yourself out of a hole that you didn't even know you were in. Angie filed for divorce about a year ago. They're in the process of working out custody and the terms of the divorce. Meanwhile, Mike is still using money as a weapon against her. He's not paying child support, and he quit his job, making it impossible for the state to garnish his wages. What he's doing, going through the family courts to exert control, is actually a really common form of financial abuse. Right now, Angie has been relying on government benefits. She's been able to get free counseling for her two youngest, and whenever she has extra money, she pays for counseling sessions for the two older kids. Angie still has Mike's voice in her head, though, telling her she doesn't know how to run a family, that she's irresponsible, that she's wasteful. Traces of his abuse pop up in subtle ways all the time. Like, shortly after they left, Angie remembers taking the kids out to dinner. It was the first time she was able to treat them to something on her own. I told the kids, I told them, I'm like, well, listen, guys, you guys can get, like, whatever you want, you know? It wasn't a fancy restaurant or anything. She just wanted them to feel special. And then she said... Just make sure whatever you get, like, let's eat it. She was basically saying, don't waste the food. And when I said it, that was Mike. That was Mike coming out of my mouth. And other times, she hears his voice berating her over day-to-day expenses. I could probably buy Folgers now. (laughs) But I still buy the Kroger brand because it's the cheap one. And, like, that's the stuff that I want out of my head. Like, when I get gas, I I don't want to—I just want to be able to get gas. I don't want to think about, like, is it cheaper down the road somewhere? Angie says she's working really hard to distance herself from him and carve out space for herself. She still has her job with the Postal Service. And now that she's independent, work feels different. I'm a little bit more ambitious now. She only works part-time so she can take care of the kids. But she's the first to volunteer for extra shifts and hopes to one day move up the ranks. What does it feel like now when you go to work? Good. Good. I feel very adult. I adult very well. Mm -hmm. Like, I know what time I have to get up in the morning to get the kids off and have coffee and take a shower. And sometimes I even brush my hair. And I don't know. It's just funny. I have this schedule. I have this routine. You can't mess with my routine because then it just throws everything out of whack. (laughs) So, yeah, feels good. But Angie's also pretty adamant that to claim she's anywhere close to being on her feet would be a lie. Like many survivors, the physical and psychological abuse she endured overshadowed the financial abuse. And Angie is just grappling with the full extent of it now. And I mean, that makes sense. The financial stuff, like whether you have a debit card or what your credit score is, takes a backseat when your safety is constantly at risk. Like, that's at the bottom of the list, you know, because in the grand scheme of things, money really doesn't matter when it comes to your emotional and physical well-being. But afterwards, yeah, it matters a lot. (laughs) And rebuilding is a slow process. For example, even though she has a debit card, it's tucked away in a drawer. Right now, she only feels comfortable paying for things in cash. When I asked Angie where she sees herself in five years, she could only really think about tomorrow. She's just trying to take it one day at a time. Yeah, you know, that's a funny thing. Like, um, people think you say the words domestic violence. They think of weak people, Mm -hmm. you know, like weak cowering Mm. like the little small woman cowering in the corner and um i read this this book and the lady said 
you know, that couldn't be farther from the truth. They don't want, like, abusers. They don't want weak women. They want to break down the strong ones. Hmm. Like, that's what it is. Like, I was never, I was never quiet, a timid, bashful. Like, I never had a problem speaking my mind or... I was never really introverted and, you know, now I got to give myself a pep talk to go to Walmart and that's all him. That's every bit of that's him. It's not me. So it's more of getting back to who I used to be. If you or someone you love is dealing with domestic abuse or intimate partner violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline has trained experts available 24-7 to assist. You can call them at 1-800-799-SAFE. Or you can go to their website and use their live chat service. That website is at thehotline.org. And if you want to learn more about financial abuse, we have a post on that topic up at marketplace.org. All right, that's all for this week's show. This is Uncomfortable is me, Rima Khreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Daisy Palacios. Our intern is Daniel Martinez. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Editing by Sarah Kramer with help this week by Nancy Fergali. Also, special thanks to therapist Shannon Thomas. She is the author of Healing from Hidden Abuse and Exposing Financial Abuse. And Carmen Recalde Russo from the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Pamela Mejia from the Berkeley Media Studies Group. Emily Dahl from the National Network to End Domestic Violence and to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Deb Clark is the senior vice president and general manager of Marketplace. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, I'll catch y'all next week.